Welcome to the Revolution of Tenderness podcast with your hosts, Joshua Stancil and Simone Riscala. Everybody, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, Simone could not be here today. She's on assignment. Well, not really. I'm just always wanted to say that. But um, anyway, she, she will join us next time. Uh, I hate she's not here because we have jazz great uh, Deanna Witkowski joining us today to talk about her life and that of another jazz great Mary Lou Williams. Deanna, great to have you. Thanks, Joshua. It's great to be here. Um, before we uh, get into Mary Lou and uh, before we really even get into to your life, I just want to mention, um, for those who don't know, you were kind enough to join us at the Festival of Friendship in October and put on a fantastic concert with your trio. Uh, in fact, the response to it was so great that we, we re-ran it, we re-aired it uh, a week later. There was, such, there was such a demand for it. So anyone who missed that, um, don't miss it next time. <laughs> Come to the Festival of Friendship next time. Uh, we're trying to catch Deanna um, uh, in concert uh, during one of her uh, upcoming dates. Uh, speaking of that, like how is COVID? Uh, how is that affecting your dates? Are you, oh. <laughs> do you have a performance schedule now? How is that Well, I, I have, I do have a few performances. So um, yes, definitely like back in the spring, like end of April, beginning of May, I pretty much had like 90% of my work canceled. Um, I had a couple of like short out of town trips with my trio from New York City. And then basically those were just all gone. Um, some of the things have been rescheduled, some not rescheduled yet, um, but kind of all during the pandemic, I actually came to Pittsburgh, I, I, I started a doctoral program at the University of Pittsburgh and decided I actually wanted to be here even though I don't have to be because my classes are all remote at the moment. Um, but I have had some opportunities to play here, uh, some live things at a jazz club here called Con Alma that's been having music outside, which of course, when you know we're having unseasonably warm weather today <laughs> um, i was supposed to play there tomorrow doing a jazz organ trio but it's supposed to rain so that may get uh rescheduled so a couple things there and then i have a live stream well a stream coming up that i did for the pittsburgh symphony they have they've pivoted to all online concert series called front row on their website so um actually the on the same date that my pittsburgh trio here recorded at manchester craftsman's guild for the festival of friendship we also recorded a separate segment for the pittsburgh symphony um doing oh, a, okay. a, a piece that i wrote for mary the williams and they also interviewed me for about a half an hour so that's going to air on their uh website on november 30th wow congratulations I want to come back to the doctoral program in just a minute, sure. but um, just to, just to talk about you and how you got into jazz. I know, like me growing up, my parents listened to country music. I listened to pop music. 
uh, later got into radio and worked at like a classic rock station and whatnot. How does someone like immediately, uh, now I was in the band and played, played jazz and whatnot, but how old were you when it grabbed you? And what was it specifically that made you think, ah, this jazz, this is where it's at. This is where the action is. This is what I want. Well, I didn't really hear jazz until the very end of high school. So I um, played classical piano and flute growing up. And, you know, by the time I was in like 10th grade, I played in like every possible ensemble in school <laughs> and accompanied the choirs. And I've always like sight reading was always something really easy for me. Like I accompanied choirs since like sixth grade on. And I, but I, you know, I wasn't listening to jazz until 11th grade, I started playing in our high school's jazz band. And uh, I had a couple of friends in there. I wouldn't say it was a great band <laughs> but i had a couple of friends a trumpet player and a guitarist and they took me to some jazz concerts at the eastman school of music because i was living near rochester new york where eastman is um, at that time and i heard the jazz ensemble play there and i i really um i that's when i first kind of without even knowing you know any names of jazz musicians or listening to any recordings or anything i just thought i think this is so cool that people are playing music that's not all written down in front of them that was like the first thing and then i went to there was a festival in rochester like the summer after i graduated and then i just i i kind of i mean that's not where i definitely had the sense i have to do this but I just, I loved the, um, I felt like there was this kind of joyful element to it. And there was so much interaction between musicians on stage. And that's something I've always liked in chamber music. Um, so, you know, in classical chamber music, I had played like in a piano trio, like violin, cello, piano um, in college and in a woodwind quintet on flute. And I always preferred playing in smaller groups. So when I went off to college i ended up long story but i played um, alto and tenor saxophone in our uh, jazz band and the jazz band director um, larry Panella, he uh, was a great tenor player and still is he's at university of southern mississippi now um, so i started taking lessons with him because he was pretty much one of two like adjuncts who played jazz and taught jazz. There was no jazz piano teacher while I was classical piano major. So it was once I started lessons with Larry and then when he um, directed me to a jazz pianist in Chicago named Jazz or named Brad Williams, who I studied with for a couple of years. As soon as I started lessons with Brad, I think the first pianist he had me listen to was Errol Garner. And the music just immediately struck me as there's this like propulsion that just kind of you know fuels you and feels so vibrant and full of life and just made me feel like happy the swing feel just made me happy and especially what errol garner does in his left hand um like that's when i really was like wow i want to play this music i want to learn how to play this music I have to ask, uh, like in terms of the piano, you just mentioned left hand. I was eight years old and my, my mother had played piano a little bit and she wanted me to take lessons. So um, there was this very, very sweet elderly woman. I think she was, I'm not kidding, she was 90 years old, Miss Swain. 
And so she was going to meet with me on a regular basis and I would take piano lessons from her. Well, I think I got two months into it and she retired. Like I pretty much just oh. drove, drove the poor woman over the edge because I could not do anything with my left hand. I'm just I'm not ambidextrous at all. How many, you just, I'm curious, like how many hours a day would you practice as, as a kid playing piano? I, you know, I never really remember practicing excessively. I mean, probably an hour a day. Oh, so, I, I didn't spend like, you know, and even in conservatory, I mean, in college, I didn't spend like five hours a day practicing. I mean, probably two hours, two and a half hours. So I, oh, wow. I always liked playing with other people more than practicing, I think, a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I do enjoy, it's just, a, it's a different kind of work. Um, especially, I think, playing um, classical pieces and, you know, getting your, you know, I never enjoyed like practicing scales. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, I, but yeah. I think there's certainly ways that you can teach those things that, you know, that as soon as you understand more how things relate to each other and like why you're doing something, it makes it easier. Um, I think to, you know, do the work of, of the actual practicing. But I will say when I started my jazz lessons, I practiced more because um, I was recording back then on, you know, a little like Walkman, like a cassette <laughs> recorder. Right. I was recording all of my jazz lessons because my teacher, I think because I had um, audited some classes at Eastman School of Music uh, one summer between classes in undergrad. Um, I think my teacher thought that I had learned a lot more uh, theory, like some elements of music theory, um, kind of specific to jazz than, than I actually had. So he would just sort of like whip off things and say, oh, I'm playing this chord or doing this or whatever. And I wouldn't always catch it. And I was like shy and I wouldn't always say, could you play that again? Or, you mm -hmm. know, um, so what I actually did was I just trained my ears a lot. <laughs> and if I couldn't figure out something he played, I kept listening to it over and over and trying to figure it out playing it. So my practice time definitely upped itself a lot when I started jazz lessons. And I also started after the private jazz piano lessons, um, I started going to a different college for where, where I went to school at Wheaton College at the time, outside of Illinois, or outside of Chicago. Uh, they didn't always have jazz combos every semester. So I started driving once a week for a couple of years to another college that had a community like jazz program where they put small groups combos together because I knew that I needed to play with a bassist and a drummer in order to get like my time feel, like rhythmic feel happening. So. I considered that to be practice too. It was just that I was practicing with other people. Sure. Now you mentioned um, a minute ago when you uh, first encountered jazz, it was, it was freeing in some way or revelatory that there's music that's not actually written down on the, on the page. So for people who really aren't familiar with jazz, or I think jazz maybe has, people have this perception of it being <laughs> maybe somewhat mystical that it's all improv, but it, how much of it is improv and how much of it is actually on paper? And how do you know, like for example, your trio, uh -huh. your phenomenal concert, you're playing the piano and then maybe right. the, the bassist has a solo and then the, the drum. Sure. When, 
is that demarcated on paper or agreed ahead of time or is it just intuitive? How does that work? Sure. Well, so this is a question that I get a lot. And, you know, I would say, first of all, it depends on the piece that you're playing. I mean, so usually there's some kind of structure that's known to everybody. And that structure might be like, for instance, if you took the two and a happy birthday, right? So happy birthday, if we divide it in, into four beats, like happy birthday to you, like that's mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, right? If we divided it into sets of four equal beats or lengths, we would get a, a, a certain amount of time and chords change at certain points related to where we are in the melody of that song. So those things, the chords, the time, the whole duration of, of the entire from, you know, happy birthday to you to the end, happy birthday to you, that whole thing, that's one cycle, right? So right. that cycle, I mean, in jazz, it often gets called a chorus, um, to borrow a pop music term, I guess, to make it confusing. But uh, that whole cycle could be something that we improvise on. So where happy birthday may start with one chord and maybe it changes chords and beat or in measure two, then we change chords in measure two. So we're actually following a structure if we improvise on that song. Similarly, like a lot of the music we played in the concert, um, so all of us were pretty much reading from the same sheet music where we would have had that say something that's cyclical like that or there were a couple pieces that um had different sections where it said okay this section is the improv section and it's this many beats or measures long right and it's over these chords that doesn't all that's not always how improvisation is i mean i think i i played some things i can't remember now exactly but maybe some intros that weren't written down at all and i just know okay this is where i want to end up you know leading into this chord or leading into this melody um but usually it's not just you know thin air like <laughs> or you yeah. know this sense of oh we just wing it that's that could not be further from the truth because oh, okay. um they're basically everything we're doing is informed by having like trained our ears and you know like studied enough to understand what kinds of of sounds um go together in certain ways and uh so we're not like you know just waiting for <laughs> inspiration to fall from the sky right. which you know it, i mean i i think most things like same thing in composing music it's usually not like you know sometimes things come in big chunks but often it's just from showing up and sitting down and doing the work of studying and learning the grammar first and learning how to converse with the other people before you can then like do a whole interview in a different language or something. I think it's very uh, okay. similar. Yeah, it seems very just mysterious in a way like there's quantum physics involved or so you know, it's just it's very um, It's above above my level, obviously, but well, no, speaking... I, yeah, well, I just want to say there's there's certain things that that can happen more. It's almost like, you know, so I've been doing um, some gigs here in Pittsburgh lately where I've been playing like, you know, quote unquote jazz organ, which is basically if you had say a Hammond B3, I don't, I have a keyboard that mimics <laughs> that sound, but I'm covering like the bass line in my left hand and often I'm playing chords or I'm soloing in my right hand. Well, in order to do that, my left hand, the bass has to become so automatic that I don't need to think about it anymore. I just go. Um, 
And I think it's the same kind of way with, say, like learning a language or learning improvisation. There's certain things you develop, you know, learning how to speak or play or whatever. And then you can be free to actually hear like, oh, the bass player just went here or the drummer on the snare drum, he just did this and I want to go with that or I don't want to go with that. But it frees your ear to be able to listen to other things rather than just be like, oh, what what note am I supposed to play next? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now you mentioned uh, you're you're um, going after a, um, a a doctoral degree. What is the pro I'm assuming the program is music, but what are you mm -hmm. what are you focusing on? Sure. So I'm a new uh, student in the jazz studies program at the University of Pittsburgh, and um, basically, Pitt the one one of the big things that's unique about their jazz studies program is it's a PhD program. It's not a DMA. So DMA is like Doctoral, doctorate of Musical Arts, which is usually for music degrees, that's more performance oriented. The PhD degree is more research based, even though there certainly is an element of performance in the program. So like I, um, I just wrote a book manuscript on Mary Lou Williams, for instance, that'll be published like uh, next August um, by Liturgical Press. That will probably tie into um, some of my work because Right now, I'm doing a lot of writing on like jazz in Catholicism in the 1960s and 70s and um, what are various reasons why it seemed to kind of spring up and various reasons why it seemed to die down. Um, so, uh, and I also have done a lot of work. Um, I started a project <laughs> before the book uh, offer came along, <laughs> which I had to stop in order to write the book. But I had started working on a project in Brazil um, called the Nossa Senhora Suite. Uh, so Nossa Senhora meaning Our Lady in Portuguese. And basically um, I uh, was looking at different um, Afro-Brazilian um, names up for Mary. And so different devotions that uh, women in particular had to marry um, in different parts of Brazil and also just in Bahia itself, which is where I was living for a couple months. Um, so the idea is that uh, I was, I will be writing a suite um, where each movement is say for, for instance, Nossa Senhora Aparecida, which means mm -hmm. the lady who appeared, who's the patron saint of the country. Um, or, uh, so basically just looking at different Marys and then I interviewed women and asked them specific questions about their, how they would characterize their relationship with Mary. And I wrote based on that, um, not using their words, but just kind of as, uh, inspiration for, um, writing, uh, my own kind of words. I wrote a choral piece, um, called Orasada Viajanchi, The Traveler's Prayer. And that is actually going to be like the last movement of the whole suite. Um, so anyway, that that's another kind of thing I want to work on while I'm at Pitt. I'm gonna be getting a certificate in Latin American studies as well so that I can focus some of my work on that that project too. That sounds amazing. Well now, speaking of Mary Lou Williams, um, uh, let's talk about her for just a minute. Um, what can you tell us about her? Like, she, for example, she wrote a, a jazz mass and you just mentioned there's this history of jazz Catholicism that sort of sprang up maybe in the 60s and then 
sort of died away. I think a lot of people, a lot of Catholics today would be surprised to hear that there was ever some sort of like, you know, Catholicism and jazz going together at all. Mm-hmm. How was it received at the time? For example, the idea of a jazz mass, was this controversial? Did people mm-hmm. not blink an eye? How did this, mm-hmm. how did this work? Well, it's interesting. I actually just did a whole digital project on this for Pitt. <laughs> so once I get some permissions, I'm going to um, make it public. I did a whole timeline basically from 1959 until 1970 and kind of showed how different musical reforms from Vatican II did or did not interact with with what I call liturgical jazz um, in that period. So there were, it, it's pretty interesting because there were some composers um, in the 1960s who, I mean, some jazz composers, let's just say, who were definitely aware of the reforms coming out of Vatican II and, you know, aware of the fact that, okay, if, say, we're an American jazz musician, now the, you know, mass, the, the text can be in English. Now there's going to be more congregational participation. And there's some composers who actually, um, had those things in mind when they wrote their their masses that were actually using the language of jazz or at least very jazz influenced or inflected um there are other composers like for instance when i i think of mary lou williams she wrote three math settings the first one that she wrote was in 1967 and she had been asked to come she was originally from pittsburgh but lived most of her life after her childhood in new york city in harlem but she had been asked to come back to pittsburgh um, to uh, teach for part of a semester at a catholic high school girls high school here called elizabeth seaton high school in brookline which is just outside the city limits and she decided there were various priests who since she had converted to catholicism Um, in the late 50s, uh, there were priests who had been encouraging her to actually write a jazz setting of the liturgy, of the mass. And it had taken her 10 years, basically, to get to the point where she felt like she was in a situation, she was working at a Catholic school, she was teaching the girls music theory, and she felt like the music theory seemed like what you were saying, like the quantum physics or whatever to them. <laughs> so she decided this is my perfect opportunity to start writing liturgical music for these girls to like learn in class. And then, then, you know, they could actually like hopefully present it somewhere and use it in an actual um, mass. So uh, that's how she wrote her first mass. Um, I don't think she did it necessarily thinking, because that's also a time, it wasn't like as soon as Vatican II was over in 65 that all the music reforms were figured out. I mean, it definitely took, (laughs) it took some years and some things like there was a music advisory board that was formed with different bishops that met in Detroit that was trying to like sort of hash out, you know, um, more practical questions, like even saying what, I mean, I hate to you know, say it this directly, but like, are there certain genres of music that are not appropriate or things like that? You know, Mm -hmm. they actually wrote, wrote documents on that stuff. But Mary Lou had her first mass done um, at uh, St. Paul Cathedral um, in Pittsburgh with 13 girls from Seton High School and the uh, Bishop of Pittsburgh at the time, um, John J. Wright was the person who celebrated it at that. So there was definitely 
a level of, she had a lot of um, uh, people within the church um, and uh, who were supporting her. Um, I don't know that she always felt that way, but, but she was really, <laughs> she was really good in, um, she was a great letter writer and she really stayed in touch with people for years. And I mean like 10, 15 years, you know, hmm. um, she even started like the Pittsburgh jazz festival with the help of, uh, Cardinal John J. Wright, um, and the Catholic youth organization in Pittsburgh. I mean, there was a whole history, um, of, you know, the, she was working, you know, within the church to reach people outside of the church and, and to bring, you know, certain music into the church. Um, it was like, I think very ecumenical in spirit. Um, and then there were other composers, um, in that period who were experimenting and some of them were using jazz in the liturgy. Well, now you said you, I believe you have, uh, you have some clips for us today. Yeah. So, um, there's, uh, Mary Lou's first liturgical jazz work is something that she wrote for St. Martin de Porres. Um, so, uh, this was in 1962. The story is that she hadn't been really composing very much for a few years, um, after. So if you backtrack, um, from like 1952 to 54, the end of 54, she had been in Europe for a couple of years. She had gone over there. She thought she was doing a two-week tour. She ended up staying for two years, <laughs> which is quite a bit longer. And while she was there, um, she's really kind of started to just um, kind of have interior questions about, you know, what she was doing. And um, she had around, I mean, within a period of months, she had several very close friends who were all musicians who um, passed away. I think she kind of just had a dark night of the soul and was trying to, you know, decide what she wanted to do with her life. And she wasn't sure that it was going to include music anymore. Um, so when she came back to the States for a few years, uh, she went through a period where until 1957 when she converted to Catholicism, she had been kind of just searching. So there's a whole story to her conversion. Um, and then she also in that period uh, from 54 to 57 really didn't perform very much. Um, but she found a Catholic church in her neighborhood where the doors were just go were open and she would just go in there so that she could be quiet um, and pray. Um, and that's where she felt peace. Um, so she started, she was writing a little bit while she was at, at this church, church at Our Lady of Lourdes um, in Harlem, but she really wasn't doing much in public. And it was her friend, the trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie, who got her back out in the public in 1957. Uh, she played with him at the Newport Jazz Festival. And there was a jazz, uh, he was known as a jazz priest. Um, a Paulist priest named Father Norman O'Connor, who was on the board of the Newport Jazz Festival. And he's the person who um, helped to get uh, Duke Ellington to write his first sacred concert for Grace Cathedral, which is an Episcopal cathedral in San Francisco. So Father O'Connor and a couple of other priests had been like really like encouraging Mary, especially because she had converted to Catholicism and she was a great writer 
to try like writing some liturgical music, but she hadn't, you know, she hadn't done that really um, consistently till 67 in Pittsburgh. But in 1962, again, in this period, she's not writing much. A friend of hers who was a Franciscan brother um, named Brother Mario Hancock visited her in Harlem. She had just come back from a West Coast tour and he supposedly, he had a statuette of Martin de Porres and he put the statuette on top of Mary's like Baldwin piano and he said Martin de Porres is going to get you to start composing again so <laughs> and you know this was the time in 1962 I think that he and also Mary would have known about there was um, kind of a push uh, to have Martin de Porres be canonized um, because he was canonized like in May of 62 um, so Mary Lou, like, had, actually, she talks about that she had visions of Martin de Porres, like she dreamed about him standing at the foot of her bed. Um, and so this led her to start writing music again. So she wanted to write a piece for him. So she wrote the music, she wrote a, a tune, and she didn't have any words for it. So she went to um, her spiritual advisor, who was a Jesuit priest named Father Anthony Woods, and she brought him the tune. She sang the tune, <laughs> and he wrote the text to this piece that we're going to listen to a little of it. So um, Mary Lou called this piece alternatively St. Martin de Porres or Black Christ of the Andes because um, Martin de Porres was the first... Uh, biracial uh, person to be canonized in the Catholic Church. And she premiered this um, on his feast day in November of 1962 at St. Francis Xavier Church in New York. So we're going to listen to a little bit of the opening of St. Martin de Porres. Shepherd's staff of dusty brood. Oh, 
So you might notice, you know, hearing this piece, most of the piece is a cappella, and it's um, the harmonies are pretty unusual. Um, Mary Lou wrote uh, really dense harmonies here, where it's almost like every single part, like the top sopranos, the bottom sopranos, the altos, like everybody split in a million different ways. And because of that, the piece really doesn't get done that much because it's very hard, even for professional singers, to do this work. Um, online through the Mary Lou Williams Foundation for groups that want to do it and I have worked with choirs that have done it um, uh, which is great that that music is available um, but if you think of if any of you listening if you've ever listened to like a jazz ensemble of like a big band and you hear all the horns playing at once like sections where they're all playing together to me that's a lot of what uh, this vocal piece sounds like because I Mary Lou had been a great early big band arranger in the 1930s and early 40s and I really think she kind of transferred that style of writing um, to her vocal writing. Jenna Wachowski thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we'll have to have you back and talk more about the piece that you're working on the, uh, the South American uh, the Brazilian work. Yeah, and if anybody is interested in, you know, knowing more about Mary Lou or um, when my book will be coming out or also um, as well as I'm, I'm uh, working on um, a new edition uh, of Mary Lou's third mass called her Music for Peace that's going to be available um, from the Mary Lou Williams Foundation. I have a whole section of my website on her, so maybe we can post a link to that and and oh, sure. In the, uh, in the notes, uh, in yeah. the liner notes, we'll, uh, we'll include yeah. links to your website, which is Deanna Jazz. Is it Deanna Jazz? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. And, um, and we'll have links to everything else so people can uh, follow you. Great. Deanna, thank you so much. Thank you, Joshua. This was, was really fun.
listening to the Revolution of Tenderness podcast. If you'd like to join the revolution, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To learn more about upcoming events and projects or to support our work more directly through Patreon or Network for Good, please visit www.revolutionoftenderness.net.